I want to invite your attention to Isaiah chapter 9 for a few moments. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll also look at some passages in other places, but primarily in Isaiah 8 and 9. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What an incredible passage before us today. And as our music program has called our attention to this light, uh, we'll need, leave no doubt about it, of course. That light is none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus said that of Himself in John chapter 8 and verse 12, where He said, I am the light of the world. <laughs> he who follows Me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John chapter 9 and verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Long ago, through the prophet Isaiah, God promised that Jesus would come in the midst of a time of great darkness so that this great light of our text then would be set against the backdrop of this time of deep, deep darkness and depravity. In such a place, the light would be unmistakable. The light would be undeniable. In the midst of this deep darkness, there's this incredible light, God says, that will shine. I wish I could tell you that everybody would do more than just acknowledge its existence. But in fact, there would be many who would deny the existence of the light. John chapter 3 and verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So in a way, it's a kind of a contrast. We say that in the midst of such incredible deep darkness, the light shines and the light therefore is undeniable. And yet we also say there are some who deny the light. You see, we never underestimate the capacity of people to deny the existence of something they know is true. A lot of people live in denial. And that was exactly what was happening in Isaiah's day, and it is exactly what is happening in our day. You see, we today preach the same light that Isaiah was preaching about long ago. The same darkness is in our world that was in our, his world then, and the same light that we had to proclaim to it. And so this morning we're going to talk very quickly about the existence of that darkness, and we're not left to wonder about what the darkness is. Back in chapter 8, Isaiah spoke of uh, uh, when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter. Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. 
If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. It shouldn't surprise us that God would speak of that darkness and the people who dwelled in that darkness as being a people who denied Him and who rejected His truth. This denial and rejection of Him took two forms. First of all, He says, you are not seeking God. Should not a people seek their God? Paul would say in Romans chapter 3 that there is none that seeketh after God. We have all turned away aside into our own way. And yet here in our passage, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah, asking this question, should not a people seek their God? And of course the obvious answer is, yes, they should. But they were not. And because of that, the darkness was deepening upon them. When people do not seek God, they'll seek something else. If they do not seek after the true God and His truth, then they'll seek a false God. And generally, that takes on the form of idolatry. We saw that in Romans chapter 1 as Paul discussed how that people would change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto four-footed beast and creeping and crawling things as they took this glorious concept of God and turned it into something they could fashion in the, with their own hands. That idol that they would fashion, though, invariably represented a kind of deified humanity because it would take the worst parts of human existence, the worst things that humanity can come up with, and turn it into a god. So that they'd worship a god devoted to human lust, worship a god devoted to human violence and war. The list goes on and on. Take the worst parts of human sinfulness and deify it. Turn it into a God and make it a figure that was idolatry. In our modern world, though idolatry still exists and still flourishes for the most part, culturally we tend to skip out on the little figurine part. We're not forming a God out of clay. We don't go down to a silversmith and have him fashion God. That's not what the culture does. But make no mistake about it. Our culture today is still deifying, worshiping some of the worst parts of human existence. And declaring this thing, these things, these sinful things to not only be right, but to be the most important thing in our culture, to be something that is to be adhered to, something that is to be held on to at all costs. When this happens, then we'll see some predictable results. Isaiah speaks, first of all, of how there was a growing fascination with the occult, uh, with the demonic and the dead. That's what he said. Why do you seek the dead on behalf of the living? Why do you go to the wizards and the mediums who you think can put you in touch with it? This didn't stop in Isaiah's day. Right here in the United States of America, there is a growing fascination with the occult and the darkness and the dead. Don't think it's all harmless. It it is not demons infested all. It's demonically infested because when the demons see that people are turning away from God, they know that there is someone who is ripe for deception Right for delusion. 
ripe to be led into death. There is then a growing fascination with all things dark and demonic. Where people turn from God and turn from His truth, then there will be also a growing fury. Not only a growing fascination with the occult and all things dark, but a a growing fury against God and all those in authority. Verse 21 of Isaiah 8, They will pass through the country hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. So that when they're looking up, they're looking up only to express their fury and their anger. And their hunger. They're upset because they have appetites that are unrequited. That's what sin does for you. Most of us have lived long enough. But in case some of you young people haven't figured it out yet. Listen to this old preacher when he tells you this morning. Sin never satisfied. All it does is create an appetite for more and more and more sin. And you can't have enough. You can't fill up enough. It never satisfies. They go from one thing to another. So there is a growing fury, a growing antagonism then that exists toward God and toward those who name God and who name the truth because they consider God to be somehow the source of their problems, the reason why everything is so bad. Growing fury against God. There's an intensifying focus on the earth. You'd think I was just making this up out of today's newspaper. Folks, I'm not. I didn't write this script. This is an ancient book written long ago. Just reminding us. The darkness hasn't changed that much. So when people turn away from God, they turn to idols. As a result, then they'll have a growing fury, a fascination for the occult. They'll have a fury toward God and toward God's truth. And they'll begin then to focus on the earth. They will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and be driven into darkness. As the prophet describes then how this darkness exists, it is because then people will look to the earth. They look to God with only fury. They look to God's truth with only antagonism. So it's a growing fascination then with the things of the earth. There's a whole book of the Bible known as Ecclesiastes that's written to describe life under the sun, S-U-N, a life lived without a knowledge of God's Son. Focused on the earth, and what do you see when you see the earth? Well, I'll tell you, it's a pretty discouraging picture. We live in a, a world, a culture, that's absolutely convinced that it can fix all the world's problems. I've got a news flash for you. They're not going to be fixed. We think we can fix the weather? Nope. Fix one thing, something else will break. Think we can stop all the pandemics, all the pestilences? No. We cure one. There will be a hundred more to take their place. You see, this world is under the curse. And there's only one who can take away the curse. And that's the God who made this world and the God who cursed it because of sin. Until that happens, it is just a growing state of distress as people look around them in their own life and all they'll see is trouble and darkness and gloom and anguish and 
they'll be driven deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness. See, the more we try to fix everything wrong with our world without the gospel, the more that sin and violence and anger erupts as people are driven, driven deeper and deeper into the darkness. And we know who's driving the bus. It would be a pretty sad message if that's all we had today, but that's not all we have because Isaiah then takes us, yes, there is the existence of the darkness, but there's also the insertion of the light, verse 1. But there'll be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And he brings back that ancient story then of Israel and how the northern kingdom had gone deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness and set further and further and further into idolatry and intermarrying, intermingling in with others until finally they would fall under the judgment of God as the Assyrians would come and sweep them away. In the days of Jesus when He came, those people were considered to be under the curse. You remember they asked of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That was their attitude. Why? Because they were so close to the border. So close up in Galilee. So, so close. We've already seen, and those of you who've been here through our studies in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen over and over again how quickly Jesus would go into those Areas that were dominated by Gentiles, dominated by idolatry, and infested with demonic activity. They always go together. They always do. But Isaiah draws attention to this land. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali. The land of Nazareth. The land of Galilee. And he tells us that It is there that God's light would shine. Jesus would spend almost his whole life in Galilee. Though he was born in Bethlehem. It's not a contradiction. Micah told us that. Micah said he'd be born in Bethlehem. But he would spend all of his life almost in Galilee. And spend the bulk of his ministry in Galilee. So both Micah's prophecy that he'd be born in Bethlehem. That happened. And Isaiah's promise that the light would shine in the deep darkness of Galilee. That happened too. For three years, Jesus would traverse this area back and forth, preach and teach and working miracles and performing great signs. Spent little time in Judea and Jerusalem. But there in a despised area under the judgment of God, filled with idolatry, infested with demons, people living in a horrible state of darkness. It was there that God chose to shine His light. Uh, Folks, let's look around in America today and understand that the deepening darkness of America is no more a threat to this light than Galilee was. God likes to shine His light against the backdrop of all that darkness so that as the darkness deepens and the darkness begins to think, oh, we're winning. No, we're not. No, they're not. Because the light shines. 
The people who dwell in deep darkness have seen a great light. And that light is Jesus Christ. Then Isaiah gives us the glorious consequences of that illumination. What happens when God turns the light on? Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now we remember the days of Midian that Isaiah brings up. It had happened long, long before this was written. We remember the story of a God, man God called named Gideon. And how that the land of Israel was under horrible oppression from the Midianites, the people of Midian. They would swoop down upon them just as they were taking their harvest and, and take everything that they had. They, they robbed and killed with impunity. There was no one to do anything, but God raised up a man named Gideon. And you remember how he brought deliverance not a coincidence that he picked out this one. They went out with what they have in their hand. They had a trumpet, not a sword. Had a trumpet in one hand. What was in the other? A pitcher. What was in the pitcher? <laughs> a light. A lamp. And they threw the pitchers down and they blew the trumpet. 300 of them. And they routed the armies of the Midianites. What were they routed by? By people of faith who brought the light into the darkness. Isaiah then brings this up and saying, this is what God is doing. And when he does, what does he bring? Well, first of all, God's light brings multiplication. People turn to God. He increases or grows them. And he also then gives them great joy. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. With God's love, then light, and then comes not only multiplication, but with God's light comes liberation. The yoke of His burden and the staff of His shoulder and the rod of His oppressor, you have all broken by the mighty power of God. Not only does sin create an appetite that it can never satisfy so that people are left with a yawning hunger and a growing anger, but something else sin does is it changed people in bondage. But aren't you glad today that the gospel of Jesus Christ can deliver people from the bondage of sin? I'm glad to be able to preach it to this crowd today and to whoever's watching at home. I don't care what your bondage is. I know something greater, something more powerful than the power of sin and of bondage. He'll deliver you if you'll call upon Him. God's light comes, brings multiplication. God's light then brings liberation. And of course, God's light brings salvation and it's hope. These are famous passages. I don't have to preach on them. I've preached on them many times before. And you've heard them many times before. Verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Other passages says they'll beat their swords and weapons into plowshares. 
this passage says the soldiers will burn their boots and burn their clothing that, uh, that's stained with blood in the fire. They'll not need them anymore. Why? Verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Uh, The zeal of the Lord tells us that this is what God wants to do. And yes, it is what God is going to do through Jesus Christ. You read Genesis chapter 1, then you'll find out that God's creative work in this universe began with those incredible statements, words, let there be light, let there be light. Go all the way to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 5, and we're told that we'll have no more need of the light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. God's revelation to us then begins with the subject of light. It ends almost with the subject of light. In between, we have John chapter 1 and all these other passages telling us that Jesus was the true light which lights every man that comes into the world. How does this play out for you today? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 makes it so plain for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you see, tells us that the God of this world, that's the devil, is blinding the eyes of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel, there it is again, the light of the glorious gospel should shine unto them. But then he also tells us that God has shined in our hearts To give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, He has put His light, you see, inside of every believer in Christ. When you leave this service and go back to your family, you'll be traveling through some darkness, but you have the light of the gospel in you. If you go to work tomorrow, you may be surrounded by darkness. You say, well, I feel like it's all around me. It probably is. But you've got the light of the gospel in you. And I want you to go out into this community. Go out into your schools. Of course your schools. Whether it's grade school or college. It's all the same. You go out with this knowledge and this understanding that the people who dwell in darkness have seen a great light. That light is the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of gospel. And it shines in you. And it shines in me.